read there. Let's take our Bibles and turn to John 15. John chapter 15. Some of you probably didn't think we were ever going to get out of John 14. What's funny is after all those lessons in John 14, I think we're going to be out of John 15 and just two lessons, maybe three. But John 15, this morning we're looking at the vine. I am the true vine, ye are the branches. But as we start this lesson, I think we should get a little bit of background to it. So we're going to start out this morning by looking at a couple of Old Testament passages Let's begin in Deuteronomy. Keep your finger there in John 15 and flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. In chapter 32, we have the song that Moses wrote for the children of Israel as he's about to die. He's giving his final charge. He writes them a song so that their children would remember it when they got into the land, got comfortable, and turned against God. And there's a statement he makes here in verse 32, Deuteronomy 32, 32, for their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Now turn over to Isaiah 5. I wanted to read that one because it was the first time that vine is really used as an analogy in the Old Testament, for the children of Israel. Their vine is not as our vine. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 5. And this, I think, may have been on Jesus' mind, may have been his, the background for his statements he's about to make here. Isaiah 5, Now will I sing of my, to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, uh, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. So here in the Old Testament, Isaiah deals with this song about the vineyard. 
He says, Israel is the vineyard. The men of Judah are its plants. This is something that the disciples growing up in Jewish communities would have heard read in the synagogue, something they would have understood. It's not a parable that is laid out um, for anyone to guess what the meaning is. God was very clear. He says exactly who the vineyard is, exactly who the plants are. Now, as Jesus leaves the upper room and is headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, we take up here in John chapter 15, and Jesus takes from this Old Testament analogy of Israel being like a vineyard, being God's vineyard. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. So right off, he gives what could be a very confrontational statement here. Now, he's only dealing with the disciples. They're meeting in private. They've had the Last Supper. They've had this Passover meal together. And as they're leaving the room and headed over, he doesn't say, I am the vine. And in fact, as I was starting to prepare this lesson, I hadn't turned to the passage yet. I was just meditating on the verse. And I left out the word true. I didn't remember it being there. And when I opened my Bible and I read it again, I'm like, oh, wait, I am the true vine. That's different than Jesus saying, I'm the vine. Jesus is being more specific It would be like me saying, I'm a husband. Okay, I'm a husband. So what? I'm Laura's husband. That is specific. Jesus doesn't say, I'm a vine or I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. I am the real. I am the genuine. I'm the genuine vine. I'm the real thing. Well, what's he talking about? Why would he say, I'm the true vine? Because of this Old Testament idea of Israel being like the vineyard or like, or their men themselves like the plants. Israel had, they were looking for, and the Deuteronomy passage, Deuteronomy 32, 32. Israel was looking at the wrong thing for their source of strength, for their source of energy, for their source of power. They were looking to the wrong thing. They were looking to religion with their Judaism. At times, they looked at the religions of other nations, and they began to try to worship and began worshiping the gods of other people. They were, at times, a very idolatrous nation. And so their vine was not the vine that God had intended for them. And even in their own men, as we see there in Isaiah 5, their own men being the plants, Jesus says here, you're not getting your source of strength from the right place. He says, I am the true vine. I'm the genuine vine. So let's look first at the persons that are mentioned here. First of all, we have the son mentioned. He is the true vine, the real, as I said, the genuine, as opposed to any other source that Israel would try to find their strength. 
They weren't going to get it in religion. They weren't going to get it in even their own people. Their strength would have to come from Christ. He was the true vine. Secondly, we see the father. He's listed here as the husbandman. I think it's interesting that in Isaiah chapter 5, that we see vines there. We see a vineyard. We see the husbandman as he is preparing this vineyard on a hill. Where do you think that hill was? That's Mount Zion. He's saying, I got up there, I moved all the rocks, I built a fence around it. He did all this great stuff to care for them. He said, what more could I have done? And here we find Jesus explains that his father is the husbandman in the vineyard. Jesus is the vine, the father is the husbandman. He's the one that's going to care for it. He's the one that's going to make sure the pruning is done. He's the one who's going to water it. He's the one who's going to cleanse it. He's the one with all responsibility for the care of the vine and the branches and the gathering of the fruit. All of this responsibility lies with the husbandman or the vine dresser, and this is the role of the father. And then we see the disciples. The disciples, as he mentioned several times here, which we're going to see this morning in the lesson, the disciples are the branches. Now, there's two different views that I have read on this. There, because there are fruitful branches and there are barren branches, some say the fruitful branches are real Christians and the barren branches are fake Christians. People who pretend to be Christian, they look Christian. But as I read this passage, I just can't find that. But the assumption is that you have to, in order to get that idea, you have to approach the scripture already determining what the doctrine is going to be here. Now, isn't that a backward way to study the Scripture? Shouldn't we be studying the Scripture to see what the doctrine should be? But I read in a commentary last night. I often, when I finish a lesson, I'll go and just check my lesson with other preachers to find out, you know, have I said something here that's really off, or am I about to say something here that's going to be really off the wall? And there was one preacher I really respect, but as... um as he was explaining this passage, he was explaining that the bad branches are lost people because a a, a true Christian is only going to bear good fruit. And so he was talking about perseverance of the saints. And so if a Christian doesn't bear good fruit, it shows that they're not a real Christian. And it was really kind of wacky. In fact, I out loud, I was by myself, and I closed the book, and I said, well, that was ridiculous. I mean, it was just weird the way the parable was being twisted because it had to fit his doctrine. And um, there was more in this that there was another doctrine that I knew he and I disagreed on, and he was having to make it fit into the doctrine rather than teaching the passage. And it's always really puzzled me some verses of this, some statements rather of this passage have always puzzled me because of some of the harshness with which he speaks of genuine believers. And that's part of the thing. Some people can't see Jesus talking this harsh to believers, but I have no doubt that the branches that he's dealing with here are actually the disciples. 
So let's go into this and let's look. And as we go, you can keep in the back of your mind, who are the branches? Are the branches really believers or are they both believers and non-believers? Let's keep reading. Verse two, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. First, we looked at the person. Secondly, let's talk about the pruning. I think it's interesting. That's the first thing he starts talking about. I'm the vine, I'm the true vine, you're the branches. My father's the husbandman. He says, my father prunes. I mean, right away, he gets into the pruning process. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So this is the struggle people have sometimes with believing and understanding that the branches here are genuine believers, is he wouldn't take away. He wouldn't cause a true branch to lose his salvation. One thing you've got to understand when we study parables or even analogies in Scripture, if we take every tiny part of the parable, every tiny part of the analogy, and we say things about it that Jesus didn't say about it, we can start getting false doctrine out of it. I've heard people preach about parables that I sat there scratching my head. It didn't line up with any other part of the Bible, but that's what the parable said. And so this whole doctrine is built on some parable. And I'm like, you do hear the word parable. That's not a doctrinal passage. It's a parable. And so if Jesus is giving us a point, my point is here, we should be looking for the main point. What is Jesus talking about here? What is his main point? Fruit, fruit bearing. He is not talking about, on what, about salvation. It's not whether you're saved or not. The point is, are you bearing fruit? The point is fruitfulness. You could say it this way. The point is usefulness. Are you useful or not? He gives, um, let, let's keep reading to verse three. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Look down at verse six. He deals with the pruning process again. If any man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Some people read that and go, oh, look, he's sending these people to hell, so therefore they can't be real Christians. But is hell the point here? Is salvation the point here? It's not. It's about whether we're useful or not. Am I producing fruit? Or am I like a branch that has become useless and has been thrown into the fire? Every one of us have the capability of, as Christians of being one or the other. The pruning process is intended to be a good thing for the Christian. It's painful. It hurts. It's not pleasant. But the pruning process is important for us to bear the fruit that God intends for us to bear. And if we're not bearing the fruit, he's going to start trimming. He's going to start clipping. And there are things in our lives that God will deal with. Things that God will start removing. Not necessarily sinful things, but things that are hindering us in our walk with Christ, that are hindering us from being able to produce 
good fruit. Every once in a while, the Lord will show me something in my life that's not right. And I look at it and I'm puzzled. I'm like, well, it's not sin. Is this really God telling me to deal with this? But then all of a sudden I start seeing that whatever the object is or whatever the activity is, that it's not producing godly fruit. In fact, I'm becoming more carnal. My mind is getting hardened toward the word of God. I'm not as sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I start realizing this thing may not be sinful, but it needs to be clipped from my life. It needs to be removed so that I'm able to bear more fruit. I want to give a couple of further witnesses to my statements here that he's not talking about sending someone to hell, but he's talking about whether we are fruitful or not. It's an analogy, a very harsh, yet an analogy. Bruce Wilkinson, who wrote The Secrets of the Vine, he said, these words sound catastrophic, but Jesus isn't threatening a barren branch with hell. Jesus is making a dramatic point. If we are not abiding, we wither and die and become of no spiritual value. Another thing to consider about an analogy or a parable in Scripture is if your conclusion to the meaning of the parable contradicts other passages of Scripture, you should assume that you've come to the wrong conclusion. So consider what else Jesus taught. Even just in the Gospel of John, John R. Rice takes just things Jesus has said in the Gospel of John that this would be contrary to if Jesus is sending people to hell here. Do not think God is here contradicting all the things he said so plainly and so often in the book of John. Um, One who receives Christ is born of God. One who believes in Christ shall never perish. One who puts his trust in Christ hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Christ's sheep hear his voice and follow him, and he gives unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. So God is not here contradicting what he said elsewhere. The subject here is fruit bearing. The sad fact is that many a Christian withers away and becomes powerless and fruitless and thus a failure in his Christian life. So as we study this, let's remember what is the point in the first place. The point is, are we producing fruit? And what a powerful illustration to think about those branches that have been clipped off. Um, recently, we, had, we have a big camellia bush out behind the house where we're living in Huffman. And beautiful. I mean, it had huge camellias on it when they first, at the beginning of the season, when they first started blooming. Just gorgeous tree. I, it must have been 12 feet tall huge. I have one of the biggest camellia bushes I've ever seen. But then all of a sudden, I started noticing that the top half of the bush or the tree, whatever you'd call it by that point, about six feet tall, about where my head is, it was beautiful and green. Everything above it was turning yellow. And the, the camellias were getting smaller and smaller. And so I started reading about it because we've, we've never dealt with camellias. Growing up, I always loved looking at my grandma's camellia bushes, but um, hers had, she never let hers get that big. Anyway, so I started reading on it, and it explained what was happening was that when a bush got too big, the, the leaves would start turning yellow, and the blooms would start getting smaller. 
because the bush could not support the, the fruit or the flower. So they said if you, they gave two different types of pruning, how to do it. So they said if you'll do these, one of these types of pruning, they said that the energy of the plant will be able to put into making larger flowers, more beautiful flowers, and the greenery will be greener. And I kept thinking about that yesterday as I was finishing preparing for this lesson. Those, all those branches that I started clipping off, they were branches that were turning ugly colors, tiny little pathetic little flowers. But what has happened since cutting those off? I, I peeked out the window last night after we got home pretty late. I peeked out the window and looked over at the bush, and it's taller than it was a month and a half, two months ago, whatever it was, whenever I clipped it. The bush is bigger now. And boy, those shoots coming out of it are so green. I can't wait till it starts flowering again to see what happens to the flowers. But then I think about that big stack of limbs that I clipped off that very, very quickly began to wither, that dried up. They're not useful for anything but firewood. And that won't take long to burn up. And it's the same thing with the vine. The wood of a vine is not useful. You can't make furniture out of it. You're not going to make a cutting board. You know, you can take, you buy olive wood cutting boards. Um, you know, you're not going to buy a um, grapevine wood cutting board. It's just you'd have to do a lot of work to that wood and cover it with a lot of stuff to make it useful like that. So it's useless. It's only worth burning. That's it. And this is the analogy God's painting for us. Are you going to produce fruit? Is it going to be abundant fruit? Are there going to be amazing grapes growing on your vines? Or are you, is it just time to clip you off and like those sticks, throw you in the fire? Is that all you're good for? Are you, are you good firewood or are you good wood that produces good fruit? This is the analogy here. Which are we? Every one of us as Christians are capable of being rendered useless. We see here that the word of God serves like shears and like water. Water that cleanses, shears that clips. Verse 2, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. He purgeth it. This word has to do with clipping. It also has to do with washing, or cleansing rather, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. I'm not an expert on this, but they say that when there are certain conditions that a vine can get, when it's been down in the dirt and it's gotten dirty and it's picked up mold or impurities, that they will pick it up out of the dirt and they will wash it. They'll cleanse it. They take care of it. Not everything is clipped off, but it is cleaned. It is purified. And he tells us here now, right now, you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. 
We get our cleansing through the Word of God. The Word of God begins to wash us. It begins to, as it washes us, yes, it clips off some excess, some things that need to be removed from our lives. As the Word of God exposes these things, they need to be dealt with. They need to be removed. So important for us as Christians to be in the Word of God. The Word of God is a cleansing agent that will purify us and make us fruitful. You and I will not find fruitfulness outside of the Word of Christ. Let's go on to the next part. Let's look at the plant here. Starting in verse 4, we see the dependency of the branches. Beginning in verse 4, the dependency of the branches. Abide in me, and I in you. Let's look at that again. Abide in me, and I in you. This is not a statement about Christ abiding in us when we get saved. He's talking about our daily lives. He's talking about our walk here. Abide. It's a command, an imperative statement. Abide in me, and I in you. When two people get married, they, may, they have to make a decision that they're going to live in the same house together. I mean, you know, the husband could live out in the shed, the wife in the house. They're not abiding together. They're not living together. But he says, abide in me and I in you. This is a, a two-way relationship. We have to be plugged into Christ and Christ plugged into us. Well, yes, when we get saved, Christ moves into our heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. But on a daily basis, I need to be hearing from him. I need to be listening to him. I need to be talking to him. I need to be in fellowship with him. Abiding so often is made to sound like some really hard, really complicated thing. When if you take that word abide and you look at what it means, it's to dwell together. I'm living with Jesus. Jesus is living with me. There is this fellowship, this daily abiding, this daily fellowship together. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. If you take a branch of a vine of a grapevine, and you cut off the branch, it is not going to produce fruit. Why? Because it is not connected to the vine. Each must be connected to the other. It's not enough to say, well, Jesus lives in me. I'm saved. That's good enough. I'm going to bear fruit. But there must be a constant abiding, a daily abiding in him and allowing him to produce his fruit in us. As we look at these verses, it's as though the Spirit and the Word of God are like sap that begins to run through our veins and produce godly fruit. Let's start reading at verse number 5. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me... Now look who Jesus says here. I ask the question again, who are the branches? Jesus is talking to his saved disciples. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. 
Now he's talking about the fruitfulness. He said, when there's a two-way abiding, you're going to bring forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Without him, we can do nothing. We are completely dependent upon him. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. In other words, we get to a point in our Christian lives, if we are not abiding in Christ and Christ in us, we come to a point where we're cast away. In other words, we're not useful anymore. We become useless in our Christian walk. We can look at sin that people do. There's been sin in the headlines with people from circles that we have, most of us, grown up in. Sin's in the headlines this weekend. Any of us, any Christian could be in the same position if we're not abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us. When do we struggle with sin? Now, sure, when I'm walking with God and I am really close to God, I get so many fiery darts. Why? Because, boy, Satan doesn't like it. He feels in danger. Fruit is coming, and he's going to do all he can to hinder that fruit. But when do I have power over sin? When I'm abiding in Christ, and he's living in me, and I'm living in him. And I'm walking with him, I'm listening to his word, I'm reading his word, I'm in his word, his word is purifying, and he's cleansing, and these little sprouts of sin begin to sprout up, and he said, that's not going to bear fruit, and he clips it. That's not going to bear fruit, and he clips it. I get dirty down in the dirt, and he picks it up, and he starts washing it off with his word. And so sin is being dealt with quickly. I'm being purified quickly as I'm abiding in Christ and he's abiding in me. I'm talking about a daily walking and talking with Christ. And his fruit begins to become evident. But at the same time, if a Christian is not abiding in Christ, we can come to the point where we become useless. We can become unfruitful. Now, let's talk about this fruit, this produce. I've read different things, different accounts. Some people say this is not talking about the fruit of the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Christian. Okay. Some people say this is winning souls. That's all that this fruit is, is winning souls. Some say, oh, this is only the fruit of the Spirit, mentioned in Galatians chapter um, 6. I think the fruit's given right here in the verses that follow. Let's look and see what the produce might be that the disciples are going to start having in their lives. What fruit are they going to start bearing? I think he starts telling us in verse 7, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, notice that's how Christ abides in us is through his what? Through his words. Now we have his words being equivalent to he himself abiding in us. You can have some supernatural, heebie-jeebie, spooky type of abiding that you have Christ abiding with you and you start hearing him talk to you all the time and he starts telling you things that aren't in the Bible. People do that. And they have this spooky Christianity and they come out with all these extra biblical things God is telling them to do. And they're contrary to the scriptures. That's not Jesus abiding in you. 
How does Jesus abide in you? He says, my words abide in you. That's how Christ abides in us. We, we spend time in his word. His word abides in us. Ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. The first fruit we see here of the abiding Christian is answered prayer. Now, how do we know our prayers will be answered? If the word of Christ is abiding in us and our prayers are in line with his word, he's going to answer those prayers. We've got to be careful how we judge those answers to prayer because sometimes he doesn't answer them as quickly as we want or the way we want. He's going to answer them in line with his word. But we're going to get an answer. So the first fruit is answered prayer. The first fruit of abiding is answered prayer. The second fruit is Christ-like love. And I have to connect this to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath, what? Loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye. It's a choice for the Christian to continue in his love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. So he tells us exactly what abiding is here. It's not something weird. It's not something spooky. You don't have to get a 2,000-page book to understand it. Jesus is really simple here. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. How do we abide in Christ? Well, how does he abide in us? Through his word. How do we abide in him? obedience to the word. That's pretty simple. I mean, it's difficult to obey some days, but the concept is simple here. Even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, how did Jesus abide in his father's love while he was here on earth? He said, obedience. He said, now just do what I did. The father revealed his word to me and I obeyed it. I've given you my word, you obey it. That's really, really simple. These things have I spoken unto you. Now we get the third fruit of abiding in Christ. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. I think he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, don't you? The fruit that begins to be produced in a Christian's life who is abiding in Christ and Christ and his word are abiding in us is a Christian who's going to have the fruit of answered prayer, the fruit of Christ-like love, the fruit of this inner joy, the joy of Christ in us and our joy being full. Now he goes back to love. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is offering the ultimate example of love, and that's the fact that a person that truly loves their friends will lay down their lives. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that he is about to go and lay down his life for his friends. Now, who are his friends? Verse 14, ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I have commanded you. He's like, this is the real test of discipleship. Do you want fire insurance? You know, just get saved so you can go to heaven. Or do you want to really follow Christ and really be his disciple? He said, here's the test. If you obey me. This is my, I'm um, sorry, verse 14. You're my friends if you do whatsoever I, I commanded you. 
verse 15. Henceforth, I call ye not servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you, what? Friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Now, Jesus has already told them in the upper room. He said, I've told you all of this. There's more stuff I need to say, but the Holy Spirit will tell you later. And so that's part of this fulfillment is as the Holy Spirit was teaching these men after Jesus left. But he said, what the Father gave me, I have given to you. They were just passing it to one another, and now it's in our hands. Verse 16, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And this is true for every Christian. We didn't come up with the idea of turning to God. The Holy Spirit began to work in our hearts and called us to Christ. He said, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you. To what purpose did he ordain us? Specifically here, the disciples, but I think it applies to us as believers as well. That ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain and whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, that he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. So there is this amazing fruit, answered prayer, Christ-like love, inner joy. But as we come to the conclusion of this, I have a question. What is the secret to abiding? On our part, I put just one up here, but there's actually two parts to it. First of all is being in the Word. That's how we hear from Christ. The more we read the Word, the more we spend time in it, the more we grow in our faith, the more as we pray, we will hear the voice of God so clearly. Exactly. We don't know what to obey. We may start obeying the rules of Christianity, and then we just end up with a very... Um, legalistic Christianity. We just start, you know, you go to a conference, go to a seminar, go to, uh, um, go even come to church on Sunday. You start hearing a list of things you ought to be doing in the Christian life. So you go home and you just obey that list. Are you really abiding in Christ if you're just obeying a list? When we're in the Word and when we start understanding the Word and we start seeing how it applies to our lives and we start obeying that's when the abiding is taking place. So for us, it's being in the Word. Secondly, it's being obedient to the Word. I don't know about you, but this makes abiding in Christ so simple. It's spending time with Him as He speaks to me, and then I live out what He has said to me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the clarity that it gives. Lord, as we see here in this lesson today, this analogy that you gave us so many years ago, from this lesson, we realize how much we need you. Lord, we don't want to be useless. We don't want to be cut off and put up on a stack that's worth only one thing, and that's just fuel for the fire. But Lord, we want to be useful. We want to produce fruit, fruit that's abundant, fruit that remains. But Lord, we realize we cannot do it in and of ourselves. We thank you that you have put the Holy Spirit in our hearts 
to produce this fruit of love and joy and peace and gentleness and long-suffering and kindness. Lord, you have put the Holy Spirit here to produce these things. But Lord, we realize that we have a responsibility for these things to truly be evident in our lives. And Lord, we recognize today that it's spending time in your word and walking in obedience to your word. And I just pray that you would help every one of us today to get into our Bibles and start hearing your voice and start walking in obedience. Lord, and I thank you for these promises that you've given us that we will start producing fruit. We'll start seeing our prayers answered. We'll see genuine love coming from our hearts and joy in our hearts. Lord, we need these things today. We need your presence like we've never needed it before. Lord, I pray that you would help us get our eyes off of the newspapers, off of the world around us, and into your word. Lord, I do pray that you would produce abundant fruit, fruit that remains in each of our lives this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.